Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. As this year's Black History Month comes to a conclusion, we wanted to check in on how things look today for black managers in the federal government. And for some perspective, we turn to the president of the African-American Federal Executive Association, Tyra Dent. Ms. Dent, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. It's great to be back. Thank you. And I just wanted to see what things look like now. We are three years into the Biden administration, different executive orders, different approaches to things. And give us a temperature of what it's like for executives in your group. You know, the temperature is certainly rising. I mean, and I use that in a context that we are seeing progress. It has been three years. Uh, We certainly do acknowledge that the work needs to continue. There's work to still be done, but we're definitely seeing progress. We remain encouraged and hopeful that the focus on equality and equity and inclusiveness will continue, that that momentum will not relax itself in the years ahead, that we can continue to leverage and gain upon the progress that we have made. And I wanted to ask you about the so-called DEIA programs that have been launched in a lot of agencies, a lot of corporations. There's been a little bit of rollback of some of that because Mm -hmm. I think one of the components of those, not all of them, but in some cases, has been to try to convince everybody else that they might be a bigot and not know it, which kind of Mm -hmm. seems like a sort of a prejudgment of other people. What's your Mm -hmm. sense of the quality and the effectiveness of DEI programs And how would you maybe improve them? Certainly. First of all, I like to dispel the use of a program. As a DEI longtime advocate, I think part of the or significant part of our individual and collective ability to really embrace the benefits of DEI come from a shift in our mindset that this is about the business. It is not a program that has a finite start date and an end date or an implementation period. It needs to be woven into our daily business practices, policies, procedures, and processes. And so when we can adopt that concept that this is enhancing the organization's ability to deliver on its mission, to maintain excellence in service to our nation, then I think we can get away from the, what I like to really refer to as the noise level aspect of it that tends to distract us from the work that really needs to be done. And really just acknowledge that this is really enabling a more productive, a more effective government. And one of the other initiatives, really, of every administration, but it goes on and on, and that is the idea of getting more young people to consider government as a career choice. And the government manages to stay staffed, even though it's hard to bring in those people and the numbers of younger people, the percentage of the federal population that is very young is small. But for those that are coming in that are diverse, black young people coming in, what's your advice to them for kind of sticking it out if they have ambitions to rise to managerial and senior executive ranks? So I like to remind them that the work of the federal government is purposeful, impactful, and meaningful, that they have an opportunity to reach across our nation 
in service to our citizens. That's the higher calling, if you will, to careers in public service. But on a more personal level to the young folks, I like to also share with them that the government is working. We acknowledge that we need to be cultivating a younger workforce, that we need to be implementing policies that respond to things like more flexibility and opportunities for career growth where they're not stagnant, opportunities for professional development. And so I do remain encouraged. I have the opportunity to see great work being done by other organizations, Partnership for Public Service, to name one, Convergence for a Democratic Society. There's a lot of work going on really looking into how we can more effectively market opportunities in the federal government to a younger generation and not only market them, but when they come through the door, how we can fulfill those promises and create conditions for employment that really inspire them to want to serve as a public servant. And for federal managers at the level that are members of the organization of the African-American Federal Executive Association, as for all SESers, given how weird the politics are out there in the country, what are the challenges in maintaining not just Hatch Act lack of, of, of violation, but really keeping your focus on that job and trying to tune out all of the politics and keeping it out of the workplace in the federal office, which is the only way people can get along and get the job done? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question. And that that's an art. <laughs> you know, there's there's not a one size fits all or, you know, a textbook answer for that. For me, you know, during my career, while we had periods, you know, it ebbs and flows in the federal government as a result of these weird politics. I like the way you refer to that. But part of that is the individual responsibility to really stay focused on the mission and what we're there to do. We're serving our nation and focusing on the jobs that we're doing and the service and the benefits that we're bringing to the American people. When that is really, really instilled in us, it has to quiet some of those distractions and you know political tensions that exist within the federal government. And the association has its executive leadership development program coming up in a couple of months. What are some of the themes? And you've got some headline speakers there. Yeah. So our theme is leading the call to action. You know, we're, we're going to unpack that. There are many dimensions to where we as individuals and collectively as public servants and as African-Americans can really, you know, lead the call to action on issues like you just bring up, you know, uh, recruiting and attracting a younger generation of African-American into the federal government. We've got confirmed so far, Siobhan Arline Bailey, the president and CEO of the National Council of Negro Women is our opening day speaker. We're thrilled to have her. And we've got a lot of other trailblazing leaders and practitioners that we are lining up. It's three days. It begins on June the 4th, runs through June the 6th. It's all in person at the College Park Marriott Hotel and Conference Center. We really are looking for unprecedented turnout this year. This also happens to be our 20th annual leadership development workshop. And so we're very proud that for 20 consecutive years, uh, despite weird politics, despite other nuances along the way that the African-American Federal Executive Association 
has been able to keep its promise to deliver this three-day workshop. We're really looking forward to it. Well, sounds like you're delivering on a lot. Tyra Dent is national president of the African-American Federal Executive Association. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's... Um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.